the Bible reveals reality. The Bible is not merely the record of human interactions with God, nor does the Bible merely reveal God. The Bible is more. The Bible is the divinely inspired, divinely directed word of God. Therefore, what the Bible speaks, God speaks. This means that what the Bible submits as true is true. Because the Bible is God's word, it means the Bible reveals ultimate reality to us. Our lives, our intellect, our reasoning is limited to one degree or another by the fall. It's like cloud cover on a very overcast day that keeps us from seeing the sun as it shines in all its radiance. And what the Bible does, one of the things the Bible does, is it's like climbing into a 747 and climbing above the cloud cover to be able to behold and to see things as they really are as God reveals them to us in clarity. One mark, then, of true godliness for Christians is living in faithful obedience and joy to the realities of Scripture. It means submitting our lives and our thinking to the truths of God that are revealed in Scripture because we are, as the church has been for 2,000 years, people of the book. And this is all important because the topic before us today is a topic about which God is not silent. The Bible is helpful and the Bible is clear about the worth and the value of and the dignity of God-created life. Even life in the womb. The Bible is clear that all life is created by God. Now tragically, this is a topic that is sometimes or even often distorted in the world in which we live. For example, some deny the life of those in the womb. Others limit the value of life in the womb, valuing life outside the womb more highly than life inside the womb. At the same time, others, in their attempt to value life in the womb, resort to tactics or attitudes that deny the worth and value and dignity of those who carry life in their womb. Or others act as though abortion, the taking of the life of an unborn child, is an unforgivable sin. So to be clear this morning, there are three reasons we're stepping away for one week from our series in Luke to address this topic this morning. Three, three reasons. If you're waiting for anything to come up on the screen, it's not because they're missing something in the back. We don't have any slides this morning. So if you want to take notes, you're welcome to take notes. I'll try to share. We're going to, I'm going to give you some reasons why we're going to address this. 
I'm going to give you a couple themes to our text. We're going to have three primary points in our text, and then I'm going to have six application points. Okay, so if you're a numbers person, you've come on the right Sunday. <clears throat> three reasons why we're stepping away from our series in Luke. And I thought about just stepping away and getting into the text, but I thought, I think this might be helpful to kind of pull back the curtain and explain and teach why we're doing this. First, because the value of the unborn, the life and the sanctity of life of the unborn is a biblical issue. This is a biblical issue. As we will see, the Bible is clear that the unborn are created by the Lord and therefore have worth and value and dignity. And the Bible is also clear that God alone possesses the right to both give and to take life. Now, anytime you make a statement like that, some people begin to think, well, they think about all of the what ifs or what abouts. You know, what about war or what about law enforcement or what about the justice system or what about, what about. This is not the place or the time this morning. It might be the place, but this is not the time this morning um, to address that. That's not the goal of our time. To be clear, along those lines, the Bible does provide a category for the taking of life in certain limited circumstances for the purpose of restraining evil. This exists because we live in a fallen and broken world. But the focus of our time this morning is on innocent life in the womb. Second reason we're addressing the value of the unborn this morning is because this is a discipleship issue. Because the Bible has something to say about this means we, as biblical Christians, ought to care about this. And we ought to believe what the Bible says about this. And we ought to make disciples who care about what the Bible has to say about this. I mean, sure, this is a political issue, but that is far secondary to the fact that this is a clear biblical issue. And making disciples, according to Jesus in Matthew 28, means teaching believers to obey everything that God has revealed to us, including the worth and the value and the dignity of God-created life in the womb. That's a part of that everything. It's more holistic. So our goal or the sum total of, of our goal and mission as Christians regarding life in the womb is not to get people to vote a certain way. It's not to get people to even act a certain way. If, if abortions did not exist anywhere in our world anymore, beginning tomorrow. We would praise the Lord and thank the Lord for that and see that as, as God's grace in providing an end to this sin and this evil. And yet, apart from trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation, even an absence of abortion does not mean that everyone goes to heaven. So the sum total of our discipleship is not think a certain way about a certain topic. However, making disciples means submitting all of our lives and all of our thinking to the whole counsel of God given in Scripture. And this is a part of that whole counsel of God. The third reason we're addressing the value of life, specifically life of the unborn, is because this is a pressing issue. We have a critical opportunity 
in our country and in our state to form laws and our constitution around our voice, around our vote. In fact, here in a couple of weeks, we have a vote. We have a proposal, proposal one on the ballot, which is an attack on the Bible's teaching about the worth and the value and dignity of God-created life in the womb. It's an attempt to enshrine abortion at every stage of pregnancy, including partial birth abortion. And as Christians who live in light of the revealed will of God, we have an opportunity to act in light of that revealed will. Now, if you've been at CCF very long, you might be wondering, I cannot remember the last time something political was addressed from the pulpit. Like, we don't do that very often, do we? You're right, we don't do that very often. It's a great question. There's a reason that we rarely address political issues from the pulpit. There's a long answer we could give and take 20 minutes, but I'm going to give you the short answer. The short answer is because we believe, based on Scripture, that the role of the gathered church is not to weigh in on everything going on in culture or politics or in the world of Protestant evangelicalism. Rather, our primary responsibility is to faithfully week in and week out teach and exhort and equip every member from the word of God so that you and I glorify the Lord and delight in him and live our lives in light of a thoroughly informed biblical worldview. We not only do this because we believe this is what the Bible calls us to do in places like Ephesians chapter 4, We also believe this is the best way to prepare one another to be culturally engaged Christians. The reason we don't talk about hot button issues or things going on in society or things going on politically isn't because we don't want our church to be involved in those things. We absolutely do. But we believe the best way, if we were to borrow the old like teach you to fish versus give you a fish analogy, is that instead of each week hitting some sort of hot button issue in culture or society or wherever it might be, and try to like, this is how you should think about this, this is how you should think about this, this is how you should think about this, kind of giving you the fish each week. I believe it's far better to week in, week out, teach you how to fish, how to, to mind the whole counsel of God, so that then as you go out, you know how to take the word of God and apply a biblical worldview to all kinds of different issues. We don't even have time in 52 Sundays a year to address Now, that being the case, there are times when an issue in culture or an opportunity is so clearly black and white, so clearly biblical, so clearly addressed in our scripture that it's important to alert you to the issue and share what the Bible has to say about the issue. You might be thinking, well, how come we don't read much in the New Testament about you know, Peter trying to get his audience to vote a certain way or act a certain way in politics or Paul trying to, this is how you should think about this new amendment coming up or this ballot initiative. And there's a good reason for that. It's because the world of the New Testament, the political world of the, of the New Testament was the Roman Empire. Caesar, Caesar was regarded as God. There was no voting. There was no constitution which gave people opportunities to express their views and their worldview and their priorities and their morals and their ethics. It didn't exist. So we believe that it's wise 
when we have an opportunity to vote or have an opportunity to shape and form our laws or our government, we believe it's wise for Christians to do what we can to shape our government around the values and the morals of biblical Christianity, to live it out. For example, let me just give you a couple examples. One of our members has created a thriving nonprofit where he works full-time to help prepare the next generation of Christian college students to faithfully engage in politics for the glory of God and the good of our nation. And we wholeheartedly support that endeavor. We're like, amen to that. We have other members who are regularly involved in the political systems, both locally, regionally, and at the state level, and they're seeking to apply the truths of Scripture to issues and needs of the day. And again, we say amen to that. We applaud that. At the end of the day, while this particular issue that we are looking at this morning has been made a, particular, or a, a political issue, it is inherently a moral and, as I said, biblical issue. Therefore, the church can and should speak on this as we bring biblical truth to light with courage and with love. Now, with that as a very long introduction, let's get into our text this morning. What we're going to do, I want to kind of point out two overarching themes. I'm just going to mention them briefly, and then we'll spend most of our time looking at three kind of main points, and then I'm going to give you six application points, all before one o'clock. <coughs> I'm not going to read the text in its entirety. Nick did a a great job. But as you scan your eyes over the text, a couple of themes just to kind of notice here. And we won't take long on this. But just notice how God-focused this psalm is. Repeatedly, David, over and over, is praying or singing, God, you did this. God, this is what you are like. God, that was all about you. Just look at verses 13 through 18. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together. I praise you. Wonderful are your works. My frame was not hidden from you. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. How precious are your thoughts, O God. I awake and I am still with you. This is an incredibly God-focused psalm. Second thing to notice, broadly speaking, about this psalm is notice how the theme is about God knowing. God knowing. Yahweh, you have searched me and you know me. You formed my inward parts. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where can I go from your spirit? Because you know me. That's significant. So with those two things in mind, let's, let's get into our three kind of main points. First, notice God's intimate knowledge of his creatures. God's intimate <coughs> knowledge of his creatures. Yahweh's knowledge of his creatures is, as one commentator, Jim Hamilton, writes, detailed, thorough, and exhaustive. I love that. His knowledge of his creatures is detailed, thorough, and exhaustive. Just look at verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. David knows that whether he's sitting or rising, God's attention is on him. So even when he's inactive, like we think about sitting, just kind of resting and being inactive, even then God's eyes don't divert from the psalmist. He knows our resting. 
His eyes never leave us. This is maybe like if you've had a, a child in the home or maybe you as a child, like dad and mom are putting you to bed, like someone stay with me till I fall asleep. Someone watch over me. Don't leave my side. This is what David says Yahweh does. He watches over us. Further notice how God's intimate knowledge of his creatures means that he discerns our thoughts from afar. Again, we see that in verse 2. You discern my thoughts from afar. This doesn't mean that God is afar, but that he so clearly discerns our thoughts, he knows them from a mile away. It's like if you're maybe watching a, a movie and, and, and then you know, something happens near the end and you're like, I saw that coming a mile away. God is so intimately aware of us as his creatures that even our secret thoughts he discerns far away. In the same way, he knows our words even before we speak them. Verse 4, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. It's good to remember even here that Yahweh is not constrained by time. He knows the future even in the present. In fact, David's words, even his future words, David recognizes are presently in Yahweh's mind. Or to put it another way, even as David was penning these very words, the Lord knew your words on this date in October in 2023 in Centerville, Ohio. Astounding. Further, just like Jonah found out that there is nowhere that we can go from the all-seeing eyes of Yahweh, David too acknowledges that there is nowhere that he can go that Yahweh is not also there. Verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. The point being, David is teaching us, even as he worships and celebrates these attributes about God, that he can go north, south, east, west, high, low, day, night, and God is there, and God is aware. God is intimately acquainted, intimately knowledgeable about his creatures. And think about the relational impact this has for us as God's creatures. The limits that we have because we are bound by space and time are not limits for Yahweh. He knows the past and the present and the future the same. He knows all, sees all, understands all. It's amazing. The second big theme here in our text this morning is God's intricate formation of his creatures. So we've seen God's intimate knowledge of his creatures, now his intricate formation of his creatures. 
So in other words, David turns from Yahweh knowing to Yahweh forming. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Scientists tell us that our earliest Memories likely don't go back any further than age four or five, maybe three at the earliest. I think at least the older I get, the later that that gets as well. But David is clear that God's knowledge of him goes back before his birth, even to his conception, and even before, essentially. Which means that even before his mother knew she was pregnant, the Lord already had a plan for him and was caring for him. And clearly, life begins in the womb. Even in the womb, God has a plan for the unique person who has been created by his careful and loving providence. Look at the care that exists here. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Don't you just love those words, knitted together? Maybe your translation says intricately formed. I think equally fair. Clearly it means that every life is intentional and designed and cared for and loved. It's like a a pregnant mother or a first-time grandmother who sits in the quiet of the evening knitting a baby blanket in anticipation of this precious gift to This language here by David is amazing. Every stitch formed with love, which means we're not mass produced. Your life is not the result of an assembly line. You were intricately woven, created by God with intentionality. Now, this might bring up a question. The question could be, well, what about birth defects or what about those things that seem deformed it's a really good question because we know that God does not make mistakes that God is fully sovereign over all things so things that appear maybe at first glance to us to be not quite right are are intentionally designed by God every bit as much as those things that to our understanding seem well designed. God creates with intentionality and he does so even when we see evidence of living in a fallen and broken world. And all of our bodies, all of our bodies bear the effects of the fall. Not just those things that get categorized as Maybe a deformation or a defect. Every gray hair, every wrinkle, every toothache, asthma, heart disease, arthritis, eyeglasses even, are a part of living in a broken and fallen world where we see the effects of the fall. That God has has given over or allowed the world to, to live with some level of futility, as Paul would write. 
He would allow our world to experience both in natural disasters and interpersonal sin and even the effects that we bear in our own bodies, the, the, the feeling of the fact that we live in a world that's not right. So every time we long for that which is right, every time we say, it shouldn't be this way, why do I have to suffer like this? Why does this person have to suffer like this? Why does this person appear to suffer more than this person? All of that is meant to cause us to remember two important things. One, that God is completely sovereign and always good. And two, that all of these evidences of a broken world mean that we do in fact live in a broken world, which calls to us to lift our eyes beyond this world to the world to come. Amen. To the God who's created us and to the, to the new creation that is coming for which we were made and for which we long for. It doesn't mean it's easy. It's not just a, a theological exercise for a seminary classroom. This is how we all should be processing these realities every day. You know, my journey in processing this began when I was really little and I was born, some of you know the story, I was born basically with no right hand, I mean a right hand, but no fingers at all, just kind of like a ball of skin. And on my left hand, I have an index finger, <laughs> I guess a preaching finger, right? <laughs> and a thumb and no else. I've really no use for the rest of my fingers on this hand and even after lots and lots and lots and lots of surgeries as a kid and adolescent and through teenage years, really no feeling in this, my right hand, uh, to speak of at all, kind of limited sort of functionality. And I'm not going to take off my shoes because it probably smell, but my feet are the same way. I have one regular toe and really no toes at all on my left foot and really no other toes on my right foot at all. I remember as a kid thinking, okay, if God created me and made me, why did he make me like this? And even walking through sometimes the, the hardships and the trials that come with kids who sometimes are just curious or sometimes kids who are just flat out mean in school. <clears throat> Lord, why did you do this? Why did you make me like this? If you make good things, if you do everything well, then why this? And maybe you've gone through something like that yourself. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's medical you've gone through. Crisis, a, a sickness, a diagnosis. You're wondering, why, Lord? If you are the God who creates good things, why this? And I think in those moments, sometimes the answer is beyond our understanding, right? We know that there are there's the revealed will of God, and then there's a certain part of the will of God that's behind the curtain that we'll never understand because God's ways are beyond our ways. And even if God would, could or would choose somehow to kind of show us or demonstrate it to us, it would be like one plus one equals seven. Like we couldn't even make sense of it. And he calls us then like children who are asked by their loving father, in this, it's beyond your understanding, trust me. He calls to us to trust him that he is both good and in control and at the same time, he will not always be like that he is accomplishing for his own children our good and his glory and our eternal joy as we look ahead to the days to come when things like sickness and suffering and diagnosis and cancer and asthma and, and deformities and birth defects and eyeglasses and gray hair and all of these things will be no more. 
For David, God's intricate formation of his creatures and of his people is how he makes sense of his existence. And I'd argue that that's how we ought to make sense of our existence as well. This brings us to our third, final main point this morning. And that's God's, we've seen now in just a moment, God's intricate formation of his creatures. Now third, God's intentional predestination of his creatures. God's intentional predestination of his creatures. And we typically think of this word predestination as God's choosing to save a people for himself from all eternity. And while that's true, what I want us to delight in here is God's destining, or we could say predestining work for all of his people, meaning he has laid out for us all our days. Look at verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they're more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Yahweh formed David's days and wrote them down, so to speak, before any one of them took place, just as he formed our days as well. This doesn't take away our responsibility for our choices and actions. The Bible is clear that we are responsible for our actions and our thoughts and our attitudes, and yet at the same time, in the mystery of God's providence, his perfect will comes to pass even as we are living out the things we desire. We're making decisions according to our own will. It's probably another sermon for another time how those things relate. But again, think of the comfort here. Like We belong completely to the God who made us who knows us. And if you're a Christian, again, his work in your life is always for your eternal good and his immeasurable glory. Always. His work is always for his own children, for your eternal good and his immeasurable glory. And that's true even when things happen that hurt us. Maybe you're here this morning and you are dealing or have dealt with the hurt and the brokenness of infertility. You know the pain. Lord, why, why, would, you, why would you withhold this good gift, this blessing from me in my life right now? Others of you perhaps in this room have experienced miscarriage. You know the pain walking that road. Tara and I know that pain as well. The words of comfort here from Psalm 139 is that little one, that little baby, even the one that was not yet in our world born, was created and known and loved by our completely sovereign and always good Heavenly Father. That little boy or little girl had no less worth, value, and dignity, no less plan, no less purpose was no less loved by the sovereign God who made him or her. This also means that if you've had an abortion and you look back now with regret, 
that that little one was created and known and is loved, is loved by his or her maker. Now, let's take all of this and let's think about how it relates to our broader theme today. I want to offer six application statements. First, God is the author of life. It's clear in our text. Job says it very clearly. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. <coughs> Secondly, life begins in the womb. We've seen that in the clear language of our text. We are formed, designed, intricately knitted together. Our lives and our days are defined by our good and faithful God, even if our days are cut short in the womb. God is no less powerful, no less in control. That child is no less loved by him. D.A. Carson writes, this should inform how we view preborn children. They are persons whom God knows. Third, this means that those in the womb should be granted the same rights and privileges, biblically, as those out of the womb. We know this sometimes brings up incredibly hard and complex realities. It always has. By making the statement that life in the womb should be granted the same rights and privileges of those outside the womb, we're not saying that it's easy. We're just saying that scripture is clear, which is why we need healthy local church families to walk through these kinds of things with. This is why God did not design Christians to live in isolation, but in community, to help one another, love one another, encourage one another, and give counsel to one another, care for one another, provide for one another. Fourth, Christians should live and speak and act and pray in light of these biblical truths. Christians should live, speak, and act and pray in light of these biblical truths. Now, let me make a couple of notes along this point for us as a church family, right? It's kind of a family meeting this morning as we gather for worship. The first is that we ought to be careful about unbiblically binding someone's conscience on one hand and about giving or allowing someone to walk in apathy or fear on the other hand. What I mean is sometimes well-meaning Christians will read texts of scripture like this, will arrive at the clear teaching of scripture about the sanctity and the value of all life even life in the womb, and then they will say, therefore, and they'll have like eight <coughs> things that Christians, they will say, should or ought to do. Like, we ought to be for this ballot initiative and not this one, and this one and not this one, and we ought to vote for this candidate, but not this candidate, and we ought to do this and not this. We should have this sign in our yard and not this sign, and we should do this bumper sticker, and we should do, like, if you really cared about the issue, here's all the things you should do. And I'm just cautioning us about the shoulds and the oughts if they're not explicit in Scripture. Because those are Christian wisdom issues of how that's played out based on the authority of the unchanging, timeless truths of God's Word. Does all life have value, even life in the womb? Absolutely. Should Christians live and act in light of that without fear or compromise or apathy? Absolutely. But how the specifics of that take shape in a broken world where we're all beset by fallenness may look a little bit different from time to time. So we should be very careful 
whenever we use the word should and ought if it's attached to something that's not clearly communicated in Scripture. It's the first thing I think we should be careful of. The second thing I think it's good to be careful of or note is that not being involved in actively helping, like in this situation, churches or Christians just like, we're, we're going to say like the sanctity of life and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the evils of taking life in the womb. We're going to do nothing to help. I mean, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing at all. But that does not invalidate the position we have based on Scripture. Some might say, well, if the church isn't doing enough, therefore the church doesn't have a right to speak into this issue. And that's just not good logic. We should all desire to do our best to live out the heart of Christ in every way. But our shortcomings in doing so do not invalidate our biblical convictional stand. And so what should we do? Then? Using that word intentionally, what should or what ought we do? Well, let me give you a few, and then you can, in wisdom, biblically, and through the leading of the Holy Spirit, take action as well in other ways. First, we ought to pray. We ought to pray for an end to abortion. We ought to pray for those considering abortion. We ought to pray for those who have had abortions. We ought to pray for those caring for those considering abortions, including our friends at Truth Rising. Fantastic ministry in our community. We should pray. We should pray that the Lord would provide us opportunities to care and to love with our hands and our feet and our mouths and our voices. Secondly, we should also protect the life of the unborn. We should act. And in so doing, we need to assure that both our stance and our disposition honor the Lord. We shouldn't let the abuses of some in our camp, in our camp meaning Christians, abuses meaning angry, tirades, hatred, we shouldn't let abuses by some in our camp be a cover-up for apathy or make us fearful. I don't want to communicate what the Bible teaches because there are Christians out there who are just angry about this. For them, like the whole world revolves around this this. They're not at all doing this in love. Like we shouldn't let abuses in our camp become a cover-up for our apathy. At the same time, we shouldn't let angry rhetoric or caustic attitudes cause us to sin. And we should remember that should issue one tragically pass in Ohio, and we pray that it does not, right? God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. And he will have somehow sovereignly ordained even this for his ultimate glory. Perhaps even through the suffering of his people. But he is still good. And his church will still endure. And these principles will still remain and be unchanged. And we will continue to walk on, walking in faith, walking by the Spirit, walking out the biblical truths of the sanctity of life and the value of the unborn, regardless of what's going on in our society or culture. Because Christians have for 2,000 years... Third, we should pray, we should protect, we should also provide. We should provide options for those considering abortion. Things like adoption or counseling or financial provision. We should get involved in the good work of 
of Hope Rising. We have many men and women in our church who are involved in that. If you have more questions about that or have an interest in that, I would just encourage you to email any of our staff or specifically email Pastor Taylor Ivester. He'd love to get you more information about Hope Rising, the good work that they do. Let me just remind us once again that the, the sum of Christian virtue here is not just vote a certain way. A personal virtue should not and is not reduced to the public stances we take. Public stances are important. Personal virtue is not reduced to the public stances we make. And I know that that's confused sometimes in the world in which we live, which is why everyone (laughs) feels the need to publicly comment on everything that happens in the world. Rather, the goal of Christian virtue is to walk by the Spirit, to seek justice and love mercy and walk humbly with our God. It's to glorify God and enjoy Him together with every aspect of our lives. Fifth, the taking, taking the life of another is not an unforgivable sin. There is forgiveness full and free through the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And so if you are wrestling with the thought of abortion or you feel alone, you need to know this morning, even if you don't think there's anyone else who understands, there's a God who knows and cares. You are not alone. You can turn to him. He is faithful even if everyone else has let you down. If this is part of your story, maybe in the past, there is forgiveness full and free through the saving work of Jesus Christ. So all of us who are saved are undeserving of that salvation. All of us are guilty sinners who deserved only punishment for our sin and for whom Jesus Christ bled and died, that we might receive salvation and forgiveness and cleansing full and free. This means then that the church, the people who have experienced this grace and forgiveness should be most of all the people and place where grace is on display, where the hurting and the broken and the confused and the scared can be vulnerable and real. In our offices, in Sunday school classrooms, in gatherings, and in the foyer, and in the parking lot, in our small group homes. This is the place where where everyone should be able to find counsel and help and hope and love as we walk together through all kinds of situations to experience the beautiful and freeing forgiveness that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, sixth, there is coming an eternity where suffering and sin and sorrow and regret are no more. We long for that day. Even as we come face to face so often with our own brokenness and our own sin and our own shortcomings and our own failures, our own weaknesses, we long for that day to come when the Lord will make all things new. Where forever we will live with him in endless joy. Let's pray together.
our good and faithful God, we thank you this morning for your word which reveals to us things as they really are. You call us to to walk lives of daily surrender before you that we might be shaped and formed by your word as your people to live lives that honor and glorify you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that you've given to us that we might walk by the Spirit. God, thank you that you intricately formed each and every person in this room this morning. You do not make mistakes. That yes, we live in a world that's broken. That brokenness should continually remind us and call us to lift our eyes to the return of our Savior and King Jesus Christ. When the sin and the shortcomings and the failures and fear and discouragement will be no more. Father, I pray that you would give to us as your children wisdom that we might walk before you with holiness. You would give us grace that we might extend to others in the same way we have received from you. You would give us love in our hearts for those in all kinds of situations, even if those situations are different from our own. We might be used of you to share your love your truth, your light, your forgiveness, and the great hope that we share in common. (coughs) Bless us now as we go, as we seek to be your people in this world where you have placed us. May you be glorified, and may you stir in us even greater joy that we are called your own. In Jesus' name we pray.